Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Richard Perkins, and may I welcome you on behalf of the LSE and the Department of the Geography and Environment in particular, uh, which is hosting today's mm -hmm. event. Our guest today is the Honourable Joe Oliver, Canada's Minister of Natural Resources, who will be talking about energy policy, Canada's energy policy. And anyone who's been following the news recently will know this is a, is a potentially contentious topic, uh, not least because of the oil sands issue. Um, so some of the issues we'll be covering today will be equally contentious. But um, I would just like to say the LSE prides itself on critical debate um, all around. And within this spirit of critical debate and critical discussion, I would like everyone today, hopefully, to grant um, the space and the freedom of speech uh, to both the Minister and to other members of the audience. Because um, I'm sure we all have our views, the Department of Geography and Environment has our views and we don't always sh share those um, with the Canadian Government. So today, Joe will be talking for about 25 minutes and then we'll have some time for open questions, uh, question and answer session. Before I invite Joe to the podium, I'd just like to say a few words about his background. Joe was, invited to, was uh, elected to the House of Commons for the first time in May 2011 and was appointed the Minister of Natural Resources in the same month. So it was a very good month for you, Joe, May. Um, and uh, Joe has a background in finance um, and has a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Civil Laws from McGill University and also an MBA from Harvard Business School, wherever that is. And um, um, also, Joe's worked, as well as working in finance, Joe's worked also in charity and, amongst others, has served as the chair of the Prostate Cancer Research Foundation of Canada for four years. This event today will be recorded and hopefully will be available afterwards as a podcast. And uh, there's, a, there's a sort of uh, a Twitter hashtag of hash LSE Canada. So without further ado, um, will, you welcome, will you join me in welcoming Joe Oliver to the podium? Thank you very much, Joe. Well, I haven't, I haven't yet earned the award, so I haven't spoken yet. But. As chair of this meeting, it is the policy of this school to ensure freedom of speech. So please, sir, could you sit down? Um, you're disrupting the meeting. Can I present the minister here with a, uh, with, with a certificate, Greenwash Propagandist of the Year, for, uh, for pushing, pushing the climate science, sir, the climate science and the human suffering associated with the most destructive Could you please sit down? Thank you very much. Well, I may not um, frame this. I'm not sure. I'll have to take a look at it more carefully a little later. Uh, but, but thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Perkins, and uh, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I really welcome uh, the opportunity uh, the London School of Economics has provided me uh, to be part of your uh, public lecture series. This is one of the most 
respected institutions of higher learning in the world, and so I'm honored to stand at a podium that has been occupied by so many prominent figures of modern history. A university that can welcome Frederick Hayek and Paul Krugman is a big tent indeed. Today, I'm going to be talking about energy. Specifically, I'll be talking about the role energy plays in Canada's economy and the increasingly important contribution it will make to global energy security and economic stability, not only in my country, but internationally. Yesterday, I was in Paris and I addressed the International Energy Agency ministerial meeting and I had a series of bilateral meetings with my international counterparts. My message was clear. In Canada, energy policy is rooted in the principles of the open market and shaped by a commitment to develop our energy resources in an environmentally and socially responsible way. And this implies doing so in a way that benefits all Canadians, including the Aboriginal people of Canada. Au Canada, la politique énergétique est enracinée dans les principes du libre marché et motivée par une ferme volonté de développer ces ressources énergétiques d'une manière écologiquement et socialement responsable, tout en générant des bénéfices pour les Canadiens, notamment les peuples autochtones du Canada. Our government believes that the free market is the most efficient and cost-effective means to ensure the proper allocation of resources for the development and supply of energy. I say that from the perspective of global leadership in the production of energy, including conventional and traditional sources, as well as cutting-edge cutting clean energy technologies. Energy is of considerable economic importance to Canada. It accounts for close to 7% of our gross domestic product, and it's growing in importance to other, Canada's, uh, other countries. In fact, in many respects, Canada is an energy superpower. Canada is the third largest producer of both hydroelectricity and natural gas. Our natural gas reserves are estimated at more than 700 trillion cubic feet, well over 100 years of domestic supply. Canada has abundant high-grade uranium resources and is well positioned to increase exports to the European market. We're also one of a handful of countries with its own reactor technology. We're currently the world's sixth largest oil producers and our proven oil reserves of 174 billion barrels are the third largest in the world. And we're just beginning to top our vast potential to generate renewable energy from the wind, sun, and the tides. Wind is the fastest growing source of electricity in Canada. By the end of this year, we expect to have over 5,300 megawatts of installed wind energy capacity, up from less than 200 megawatts a decade ago. Canada is also making advancements in marine renewable energy. For example, a partnership established earlier this year between the European Marine Renewable Energy Centre in Scotland 
and the Fundy Ocean Research Center for Energy in Nova Scotia brought old and new Scotland to work together. And as announced by the joint declaration by Prime Ministers Harper and Cameron in Ottawa uh, last, uh, last month, Canada and the UK plan to lead the world in moving, toward, in moving forward from pilot wave and tidal energy devices to exploring actual power generation stations connected to our respective electricity grids. Indeed, Canada is a leader in clean energy. Fully three-quarters of our electricity supply, 75%, comes from non-emitting sources, including 60% from hydro. The billions of dollars we're investing in clean energy technologies, notwithstanding, it is our oil that attracts the most attention. Or perhaps I should say, it's the source of our oil that attracts the most attention. Of the 174 billion barrel reserves, 170 billion are found in the oil sands in northern Alberta. To put it in perspective, our oil sands are equivalent to EU consumption over the next 34 years. And as technology evolves, the oil sands could yield as much as 315 billion barrels, which would make it by far the single largest reserve in the entire world. Yes, the movement away from our dependence on oil and other fossil fuels has started, but this is going to take a long period of transformation. Let's look at the role of renewables in the energy mix. In Canada, 3% of our electricity needs are met by non-hydro renewables. For the European Union, that is 9%, and here in the UK, it's 5.8%. In Canada, the amount of electricity provided by fossil fuels is 23%. For the EU, it's about 50%. For the UK, it's 73%. Clearly, while non-hydro renewable sources of, of, of energy such as wind, solar, tidal, and biomass are growing, and we need to continue investing in them, the reality is that in the intermediate term, they cannot come close to replacing the energy that fossil fuels provide. Here's what the International Energy Agency had to say about oil. Even under the most stringent greenhouse gas policy scenario, oil will remain the dominant source of energy for the next 25 years. Global oil consumption is expected to rise from today's 87 million barrels a day to 105 million barrels a day by 2030, an increase of nearly 20%. That is the reality. We cannot just turn off the top. That would create economic chaos, and it would relegate more than a billion people around the world to further decades of energy poverty. The IEA also predicts that as conventional supplies are depleted, so-called unconventional sources, like Canada's oil sands, will be an increasingly important part of the energy supply and an even greater contributor to global energy security. In other words, Canada's oil sands are more than an energy resource, 
They're a strategic resource. Consider this. Canada is the biggest single supplier of crude oil and petroleum products to the United States. Two and a half million barrels a day. More than 20% of total U.S. oil imports. Increasingly, the oil that flows from Canada to the United States flows from the oil sands. In other words, the oil sands are a major contributor to U.S. energy security and, by extension, to U.S. economic stability. Keep in mind that when we talk about Canada's position as a contributor to global energy security, it's not just volume that is important, it's reliability. Eighty percent of known oil reserves around the world are either controlled by the state or managed by national oil companies. And that is not the case in Canada. Our oil sector is not run by the state, but rather is open to market-based development with investment from around the world. Canada is not a member of OPEC. And of the 20% of world oil reserves available for market-based development, 60% is Canada's oil sands. So it's no surprise that whoever um, built podiums never gave a speech. So, so they have lips here that, that, that can't, uh, if one wants to talk for a long time, can't accommodate it all. Um, so it's no surprise that Canada's energy sector in general, and the oil sands in particular, are becoming increasingly popular destinations for investment by EU-based energy companies. European companies already make up some 10% of the stock of foreign direct investment in Canada's oil and gas sector. An additional 1.8 billion was invested between 2009 and 2010, raising the stock of European foreign direct investment uh, by 36%. For example, Shell is active in northern Alberta's oil sands with a controlling interest in the Athabasca oil sands project. Shell is also continuing to work at limiting the environmental impact of its operations and has partnered with the Government of Canada and Alberta on a $1.3 billion Quest carbon capture project at its bitumen upgrader, which will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by some 40%. BP is currently involved in three joint venture opportunities in the oil stands using steam-assisted gravity drainage technology. And last October, Total of France acquired UDS Energy Corporation, a significant player in the oil sands, for $1.2 billion. In March of this year, Total completed a $1.8 billion agreement to complete three other large properties in the oil sands in a joint venture with Suncor Energy. And this interest is not just limited to Europe. Over the last decade, the stock of foreign direct investment in Canada's oil and gas sector from Asian companies has grown from $2 billion to $19 billion. We welcome these investments, just as we welcome opportunities to increase and diversify our oil exports. As I'm sure you're aware, the United States is expected, or some of you may be aware, the United States is expected to decide very soon whether to approve a new pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline, which would carry more oil from Canada's oil sands to refineries in southern United States. 
Our government supports the project and believes it is in the national interest of both Canada and the U.S. And there are other proposals for projects. Northern Gateway Pipeline, the expansion of Trans Mountain to carry crude oil from the oil sands to ports on our west coast for export by tanker to Asia-Pacific markets. Since all our oil exports go to the United States, these are welcome initiatives. To know that putting all your eggs in one basket is not good business does not require a degree from the LSE, but it might help. It's also not good business to ignore our environmental responsibilities, nor is it the right thing to do. And that is why Canada is committed to developing its oil sands in a way that is both socially and environmentally responsible. Since 2006, the Government of Canada has invested more than $10 billion to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and build a more sustainable energy sector through investments in green infrastructure, energy efficiency, clean energy technologies, and the production of cleaner energy. We hear a lot of criticism from some people about the oil sands, but those criticisms are often exaggerated to the point where they've taken on near mythological proportions. So let me run through them and counter with the facts. First, consider the impact of oil sands development on land. The impact is not permanent. Companies are required by law to remediate and reclaim 100% of affected land. Oil sand companies must file a conservation and reclamation plan as part of their initial project application. They must keep it current and post financial security bonds for reclamation. Furthermore, the impact is not as extensive as critics would have you believe. These are me mega projects, but the total oil sands area would impact only 0.1% of Canada's total boreal forest. And even then, 100% of this has to be reclaimed, as I said. Stated differently, that is 4,800 square kilometers. Compare that to 224,000 square kilometers of land protected by Canada's national parks. One national park, Wood Buffalo in northern Alberta, alone covers 45,000 square kilometers, one and a half times the size of Belgium. Water. Most of the water used in oil sands development, as much as 90% in some cases, is now being recycled. All existing projects withdraw less than 1% of the average annual flow of the Athabasca River. We're also working to address greenhouse gas emissions associated with oil sands development. And again, it's important to put this concern in context. The oil sands account for one-tenth of one percent, or one in a thousand, of global GHG emissions. GHG emissions from European electricity generation, which make up about a quarter of EU GHG emissions, were nearly 30 times greater than the GHG emissions from the oil sands. Germany generates seven times as much as the oil sands, and UK three times as much. Studies have shown 
the life cycle, GHG emissions from the oil sands, that's a wheels, a well-to-wheels calculation, are similar to, and in some cases actually lower than several other heavy crude oils currently being imported to the EU, and even some lighter crude oils that it relies on. And that's why Canada strongly objects to the discriminatory treatment of oil sands proposed in the European Fuel Quality Directive. While we do not object to the Directive's goal of reaching GHG emissions, or reducing, I should say, GHG emissions from transportation fuels, we do object to the discriminatory treatment currently contemplated by the F, uh, FQD, singling out oil sands derived fuels without sound scientific justification. Studies have shown that the life cycle GHG emissions of the oil sands crude are similar to or lower than other heavy crude oils that EU imports from countries such as Russia and Nigeria. And the fact that the EU is not proposing to discriminate against oils from these countries, yet focuses on Canada's oil sands crude, which they do not import, is odd, to use a non-normative word. The EU needs to do its homework before it finalizes its directive. We await scientifically sound, objective analysis comparing all crude oils. We believe the European Commission's current approach is unfounded, could set a precedent, it could damage Canada's reputation. If unjustified and discriminatory measures to implement it are put in place, let me be clear, Canada will not hesitate to defend its interest be in, in Europe or elsewhere. Now, this is not to suggest that we're prepared to live with the status quo with regard to GHG emissions from the oil sands. Canada submitted a target under the Copenhagen Accord to reduce our emissions by 17 percent from 2005 to 2020 in line with the U.S. target. And we're one of the very few major oil exporting nations to have such a commitment. Between 1990 and 2009, emissions per barrel from the oil sands was reduced by 29 percent. And today with industry, we continue to invest in new technologies to make those numbers even better from carbon capture and storage to new ways to reduce the energy required to extract and process the oil. We also remain committed to ensuring our resources benefit all Canadians, including the Aboriginal people of Canada. The Government of Canada is working directly with First Nation and Métis communities to address and manage the impact of oil sands on their communities also. Our investigations also benefit from traditional knowledge of our ab Aboriginal elders, elders who are providing valuable information about weather patterns, the land, plants, and animals, and how these things have changed over time. In the meantime, the oil sands are advancing the efforts of Aboriginal peoples to improve their social and economic well-being. Aboriginal business owners and skilled workers make a significant contribution to the oil sands industry and realize significant benefits. In 2009, over 1,600 Aboriginal people were directly employed in oil sands operations, and over the past 11 years, Aboriginal-owned companies have secured over $3.7 billion worth of contracts from oil sand companies in the regions. 
Our, uh, our energy industry is among the most stringently regulated in the world. I would challenge anyone to name an energy project anywhere in the world that is subject to greater and more kinds of oversight than Canada's oil sands, and we're committed to doing even better. We're strengthening the world-class regulatory regime, and we're supporting innovation and ensuring greater certainty for investors. We're committed to developing more meaningful Aboriginal consultations and to delivering even better environmental outcomes. The oil sands are a major strategic global resource, a resource that will make an increasingly important contribution to energy security and economic stability. Canada is committed to developing this crucial resource in a socially and environmentally responsible way, but develop it we will. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much, Joe, for a very, very informative and sometimes very frank account of Canada's um, energy policy and the role that Tartans play in this. Uh, we've now got time for some questions um, from the audience. And to plea to you, um, I'd be very, very grateful if you could put your hand up and wait till a microphone reaches you. And also, could we have questions rather than long statements? Um, in the spirit of allowing other people to have questions, it's best if we get to the issues as quickly as possible. So I, I notice at the back there we've got a gentleman. So would you like to identify yourself and say where you come from and just a single question. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hi, uh, my name is Mike. And I'd like to start by saying thanks for coming and speaking to us today. I'm from Canada as well. So, hi. Um, I mean, first of all... Proud, proud tradition of Canadians at the LSE. Sure, okay. Uh, <laughs> it was a compliment. <laughs> thanks, I guess. Um, a small comment, if I can, at first, uh, about your comparison to other countries, greenhouse gas emissions, the EU and Germany, and I think there was another one. I don't think it's a really good defense to say that they do it too, or they're worse than us. It seems a little bit infantile for such a, an unsafe and risky industry that the whole world should be trying to phase out as quickly as possible. Um, anyways, my question is that uh, given that oil companies continue to reap tremendous profits in Canada and around the world, I'd like you to compare, if you can, the amount of money that the Canadian government invests in the oil industry compared to how much it invests in clean and renewable sources of energy as well as native community development across Canada. Well, the, the, the oil sands are not supported uh, by the government of Canada. Their, their private sector um, uh, projects. Uh, the, the government of Canada benefits from it through, through royalties and taxes. I think it, the, the number is some $22 billion over the last, I think, five or five years. I, I may be wrong in the number of years, but I'm right in the, in the dollar amount. And that money, of course, is used by, uh, by governments, provincial and, and the federal government, to, uh, to finance social programs, education, and health. 
So uh, Canadians across the country uh, benefit uh, from, from this significant resource and this, and this important industry. Uh, our government is, is, uh, is committed uh, to, uh, to helping people. Uh, to, to, uh, we're, we're continuing to provide to the provinces uh, money for health care. Uh, we've made a commitment to increase the, uh, the amount uh, transferred to the provinces by 6% a year. And um, we devote um, huge amounts of money uh, to research and development. Uh, uh, $10 billion to, to clean energy and uh, energy alternatives. And, uh, uh, you know, we have a very uh, proud record uh, to stand on. Thank you very much. We have a question from a lady here. Hi, my name is Angela. I'm originally from Saskatchewan. And um, my question is kind of regarding unconventional resources, including shale gas and, and that sort of thing. I'm just wondering how you think that shale gas will impact Canada uh, in the coming years, both in terms of its domestic production and in terms of the vast amounts that's being produced in the, in the United States and how that's going to affect Canada in terms of exporting other forms of energy. Well, the, the, um, a number of shale gas projects are being looked at by the provinces and they're under review uh, by our regulatory authorities. So we respect the regulatory process and I don't want to comment on them specifically. However, as I think I mentioned in my remarks, we have at least a hundred years of, of domestic uh, supply of natural gas in the form of, of shale gas in Canada, and a lot of people think it's, it's closer to 200 uh, years. The United States has vast supplies, and unlike oil, uh, shale gas is distributed somewhat more broadly around the world. A lot of people feel that shale gas is a game changer and uh, will uh, be important in supplying energy to the globe over a very extensive period of time. I know France has, has put a moratorium on it, uh, but um, you know a lot of other countries are looking at uh, to shale as a uh, as an extremely important source of, of energy independence uh, and and uh, revenue going forward. I think there are some environmental issues that have to be uh, addressed. Uh, the fracking process, which uh, which which results uh, in the extraction of the uh, uh, of the shale gas uh, can have uh, an, an environmental impact and it's very important that it to be addressed in the appropriate manner. You know, what we're dealing with with shale and with, with, with the oil gas are, is essentially uh, a series of technology projects. I mean, the, the oil sands are a technology project. And so, and we're, we're, um, the technology, first of all, resulted in, in better forms of extraction so that we could actually uh, get the, the, uh, the bitumen out, but it's also improving the, um, uh, reducing the environmental footprint. And that is happening ev every day so that the gap between, and it's not large, it's maybe 10 to 15 percent life cycle, the gap between um, conventional oil in terms of emissions of greenhouse gas and uh, the oil sands is is continually narrowing and uh, the the recent final environmental uh, uh, impact statement that was um, commissioned by the US State Department and independently done by scientists commented on the fact that that, that gap is, is narrowing. So uh, the extraction methods are improving, the amount of, of resources are increasing, and the environmental, uh, the negative environmental impact is reducing. I mean, we, we hope to see it, of course, 
to see that gap totally eliminated. We're not there yet. I can't promise when it'll happen, but we're certainly headed in the right direction. Um, we're also, um, you know, in addition to shale, uh, there is wind, uh, solar, and biomass, and we're working, uh, and we've spent a great deal of money to, uh, to bolster those, uh, those other alternative sources of energy which are non-emitting. There's a gentleman over here in the blue, I think, blue coat. Identify yourself. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Matthew Lombardi. I'm from uh, Toronto. Uh, we appreciate you being here today, Minister, and certainly the opportunity to ask you some questions. Uh, you mentioned that 90% uh, of the clean water that's used uh, in the production of oil in the oil sands is recycled. Uh, that's an interesting way of dressing up the actual statistic. Um, what you didn't mention is that the 10% that isn't recycled is four full barrels of fresh clean water for every barrel of oil produced. Now, um, no less an expert than Jeff Rubin has said that Canada's number one resource is fresh water, uh, number one uh, above oil. So, I mean, aren't you just robbing Peter to pay Paul? Aren't you just getting rid of one really precious resource to, to produce another? Well, the, the first point is that there, okay, there are two ways that you extract uh, oil sands. Uh, uh, one is, is open pit mining and the other is, is so-called in-situ drilling. And the reason you pick one or the other relates to how deep the oil is found. If it's found uh, within, uh, let's say, 70 feet, uh, they, what, you, what you do is you put steam in, and the steam uh, liquefies the, the bitumen gets it out. Um, if it's less than 70 feet, you can't drill a hole because the, the land will effectively collapse, so you've got to do open pit mining. That represents 20% or less of the extraction, and that's where the current ratio is, is 4 to 1 uh, that you related to, and, but it's, it's decreasing because of technological improvement. The other 80%, the in situ, where they drill a hole and, and, and send the steam down and bring it up, that now uh, only requires one uh, uh, barrel of water to one, for one barrel of oil. So it's, it's, it's one to one on 80% and four to one on, on 20%. We have about a million uh, lakes in Canada or more, I, I, I don't know the exact number, and we've got a lot of water, but we, it's, it's a very important resource for us, and uh, uh, we're, we're working to, uh, to reduce the, uh, the, the water usage. One potential um, massive breakthrough, and we're not quite there yet, but they're looking at it, is to, to replace water with, with a fluid. Uh, synthetic, which would be a non-polluting fluid, you know, uh, and uh, there, there's some very uh, hopeful uh, projects that are that are at work, uh, and and we, uh, you know, we're I, I can't promise it, but it's it's a sort of an indication of the type of uh, of technology, uh, technological research that's going on. Now, if we can do that, then of course there's no water, but I, that's not a that's not something that's quite there yet. Lady uh, here. Hi, my name is Erin Roberts and I'm from Vancouver. I'm just wondering, you mentioned uh, your government's uh, ambitious plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Could you outline for us how you plan to achieve those targets? I'm also interested how you plan to help the indigenous peoples of the north adapt to climate change. Thank you. Um, well, in, in respect to, uh, I mean, this is more a question for the Minister of the Environment, but we're, you know, we, what, we're, what our objective is under the Copenhagen Accord is to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions 
uh, by 17% from 2005 to 2020, and which is identical to the U.S. to the U.S. number. And it's it's an ambitious uh, but achievable uh, objective, and we're trying to do that in a whole host of ways. Um, one way is is to encourage the use of alternative. Uh, 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 fuels that are non-emitting. Uh, the other is to increase the efficiency of, of transportation. Um, because, you see, when you look at, at energy usage on a, on a, a, a life cycle basis from, from the, the wellhead to the wheels, it's 70% of, of the emissions come from transportation, come from, you know, when you fill up your car to uh, you know, when you completed your drive. It's, it's not from the extraction of, of, of the oil. So 70%. So that's where we've been spending a lot of time in, in uh, you know, setting standards for, um, for fuel consumption in, in cars. Uh, we, we did that for, for heavy, heavy uh, uh, transport vehicles. We're doing it for, for light transport vehicles. Uh, we're moving with the U.S. on on, on standards, uh, we um, we have a we have a program, and, th and there isn't a magic bullet. You've got to do it across the board. We've we've got a program which will uh, which will identify uh, ways to make homes and heating you know heating of homes more uh, more efficient, uh, which which reduces uh, energy usage uh, you know very substantially. We're gonna, we're setting up. Standards so people when they buy homes they'll know if they're if they're energy efficient or not. We've had a uh, a huge program that, that I have responsibility for, and the the, the next phase of it is is 400 uh, this year. It's 400 million dollars. The Echo Energy Homes Renovation Program, where we give uh, credits uh, to to uh, Canadian uh, homeowners uh, to make um, renovations on their homes, which will make them more uh, energy efficient. Um, and uh, we're, we're supplying uh, money for, for research and development to Canadian universities right across the country. We're encouraging uh, use of tidal power. I mean, that's, that's another uh, so potential source. I mean, the, in the Bay of Fundy, the, the amount of water that's going through in the tides is equal in, in, in volume to all the rivers in the world. So we're, we're talking about a whole series of ways uh, to, 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 in terms of the supply and the demand side to, uh, to get there. The gentleman at the back with the uh, blonde hair. Um, you said in your speech that uh, the land reclaimed, uh, well, the Canadian government had a policy that the land reclaimed would be 100%. Um, but so far in the last 40 years, the land reclaimed has been something like 0.2%. So I don't understand how you can keep on claiming that there's a tar sands cleanup policy that's under control. Well, as I say, the land that's taken up is 0.1%. So if we did 0.2%, we're doing pretty well. Um, the, the land, sorry? Well, no. What? What? No. What's happening? What's happening? I've been. They, I. You know. They forced me to go to a, a mosquito-infested forest to prove the point. Um, you know, the the land that is being reclaimed it looks identical to the land before. You can't tell, uh, frankly. Well, in fact, in fact, actually, in fact, it is true. No, but but what what I what just just if if you well just just. Can, Okay, can I can I just answer the uh, the, the question? So what 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 the companies do, they have to complete 
the, the, the uh, drilling process. Once it's completed, then they start working on the uh, reclamation, which they are obliged to do immediately, and which they have set money aside in escrow to do. So it is going to happen. It's required by the law, and the money is available to do it. I mean, look, you, you go there and you look at this. It, it looks vast it, on, a, on a human scale. These trucks, the wheels are, 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 are large, and you know. But the fact is, the land is being reclaimed. The forests are being reclaimed. The ponds are being reclaimed. The, the wildlife is back. The fish are back in, in the ponds. That is a fact. People didn't live there. Well, it is a fact. I didn't hear what you said, but I didn't hear exactly what you said. But Well, actually, uh, I'll tell you what's... Well, actually, uh, well, actually, we are, we are, well, actually, it's not factually correct. Okay. I would like to thank everyone for their views, everyone for their very, very candid views here, but unfortunately we've run out of time now. Uh, the minister has to go, and we've got teaching in here afterwards. Well, just to um, say that I, I flew over it and I walked through it. Um, but, but, uh, let, let me, let me, uh, oh, okay. Okay. Well, Thank you okay. very much, sir. Yeah. So just, just one, I, might, I just might make one point. One of the reasons that the oil sands were discovered was because the oil, which is high up, was, was leaking through into the rivers. You see, that's been going on for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Okay, th thank you very much. This is, this is clearly a very, very big debate. I mean, how countries uh, achieve uh, energy security, address energy poverty while addressing climate mitigation and also achieving sustainable development is a debate will go on and tar sands will play an important role in this particular debate uh, for many, many years to come. So I'd just like to thank uh, the Minister today uh, for his presentation providing one sort of argument within inside this debate um, and I wonder if we just thank um, the Minister and please when the Minister leaves could you keep seated uh, until he's left so thank you very much.